got a lot of feedback that from a technical standpoint, our engineering students were incredibly well-trained, but that they, that employers would like to see more tangible work experience from our undergraduates. And I said, okay, we're going to take all of these stated needs and all of these trends and how can we package this together in a way that is going to provide global opportunities for students, but also leverage other goals. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Stride's inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and I'm so excited about this week's episode. Today, we're digging into one of my very favorite corners of international education, global research programs. We'll be diving deep into research programs abroad and talking about why they matter to students, to practitioners, and to institutions at large. Many colleges and universities are intentional in providing undergraduate research experiences overseas for their students. A primary goal is to involve students with actively contested questions, empirical observation, cutting edge technologies, and the sense of excitement that comes from working to answer important questions, all within a global context. While undergraduate research, however, has been prominently used in science disciplines, many institutions are now working to provide research experiences for undergraduate students in all disciplines. As our listeners will know, students involved in high-impact practices like undergraduate research enjoy higher levels of learning success. Other high-impact practices include service learning, undergraduate research, of course, first-year experiences, and naturally, study abroad. I can't imagine a better person to help us unpack this topic than my dear friend, Dr. Andrew Wingfield. Andrew is the Director of Global Engagement for the College of Engineering and Applied Science at the University of Colorado Boulder, and a familiar face to many of us in international education. He is also a lecturer in the CU Boulder School of Education, where he teaches a graduate course in international higher education. I can't wait for our conversation today. Stay tuned and sit back, my listeners, as this is sure to be a captivating conversation. Dr. Andrew Wingfield, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Zach. It is my absolute pleasure, and I'm a big fan of the show and so glad that you are doing this important work to uh, elevate voices of international educators across our country. Why, thank you for saying that. Uh, To begin, I'd love it if you could give us a brief overview of your professional journey, how you came to your current role, and share a bit about the study abroad ecosystem at CU Boulder. I'm often quoted as saying that I was a study abroad junkie turned study abroad professional, or at least international education professional. Uh, as an undergraduate, I spent my junior year abroad. I did a semester in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and a semester in Nantes, France. And when I graduated, I I didn't have a sense of what I wanted to do other than I loved the world and I hadn't seen enough of it. And so uh, my 20s were spent sort of bouncing around, finding ways that I could sustain myself while finding work abroad. Um, so I spent four summers in the Caribbean and one in South America and the Galapagos. I say hurting teenagers, but it was a, a residential program based on community service, cultural discovery, and so forth uh, in these uh, locations abroad. Uh, I spent a year teaching English in Spain. And when I came back from Spain, uh, the economy had fallen out as the Great Recession, and I um, got a job um, as an adjunct teaching Spanish at my alma mater, and then, and then a second part-time job 
uh, working at a bank, counting other people's money. And I was really grateful in that time to not be um, having to move back home. And so many millennials who just graduated were having to do so. Um, but also, I knew that my current path was why I needed to focus it somehow. So like so much good soul searching, I went to Google and uh, it turns out that international education is in fact a field. And I thought, wow, I could pursue a graduate degree and this would be a great way to sort of connect the dots in my disparate experiences, um, put a narrative behind it and, and get that through line. So I got my master's in international education policy and management. And then from there, I was hired by the University of Missouri, Kansas City for international student recruitment and admissions. And then not long after that, I was hired by one of your recent guests, Cynthia Banks, the founder of Global Links Learning Abroad, where I did a combination of first institutional relations and later I oversaw the full degrees program for her uh, or for Global Links. And then stayed on when ISA acquired Global Links and had a wonderful more than two years working with ISA before I transitioned over to my current role at CU Boulder. Um, when I first moved to Denver, I thought it'd be one more step on my of many on my path. And um, turns out the longer I've been here, the more I want to stay. And um, when my current position opened at CU Engineering a few years ago, I reached out to my contact there. And well, the rest is history. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. And I appreciate the shout out to friend of the pod and international education legend herself, Cynthia Banks. I appreciate your introduction, and I'm embarrassed to say that some of those things I did not know about you, so I appreciate you sharing. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, you worked at ISA, a first global link, so then ISA a number of years ago, specifically with our Euroscholars Research Abroad program. So in some ways, I want to welcome you back home. And these days, you are based on a university campus, and I'd love to hear you speak about how your experience working for a program provider like ISA and Global Links positioned you for success in your current role in a current role in university leadership. Oh man, in so many ways, Zach. Prior to joining CU Boulder, you know, I had had the combined about four and a half years working for Global Links and ISA. And in that time, I got to meet so many people in our field where I first learned how collaborative it is and that I had a basically forever network of collaborators that I could go to. Um, but then also I got to see a whole lot of different models and I got to visit a ton of different institution types. I went to a very small private liberal arts college, which is completely different look and feel than a large public flagship like where I work now. Um, and I got to steward different different uh, universities, different campus relationships within my region to be able to go to other public, like large publics, regional publics, small private, selected privates, like running the gamut of seeing how institutions were structured, uh, how they were running their programs, where they had pain points. It gave me a lot of introduction into what would become a lot of my work now, which is trying to navigate academic policy as it pertains to study abroad and understanding where some of those pain points are. Um, you know, we talked about Euro scholars a bit, and I think we'll get to this a little later on, but one of the, the first things that I learned about Euro scholars is that at a high level, people loved it. Folks on campuses were incredibly attracted to it, but as soon as you got granular, it immediately became a question of, well, how do we apply these credits? How do students earn credits on this deeply impactful learning experience that will keep them on track to graduation? I think the combination, Zach, of, of having all of those, having that network and having that experience um, positioned me very well to be able to jump in at CU Engineering as a non-engineer and to be able to navigate these conversations in a respectful and productive way with our faculty and staff. 
Thanks for sharing that. And I, I love what you said about your time working for a program provider, allowing you to see so many different types of institutions. I like to tell a story, and I know you'll appreciate this, but I was at a regional NAFSA conference last year participating in a trivia event. And one of the categories was showing pictures of university campuses and asking us to guess the name of the campus. I was like, oh my goodness, I have prepared my entire career for this. Uh, So I I do love that about our our particular roles is that the ability to see how education abroad works at so many different types of places. And it does prepare individuals well. Yeah, and I, I, I would think you would be a great contender at winning that award, Zach, or winning that trivia contest. I love following your Instagram that's often guess this city, guess this campus. <laughs> <laughs> not to brag, but I did win that category, Dr. Wingfield. I'm not, I'm not remotely <laughs> surprised. <laughs> but Andrew, I'm, I'm curious, how did you first become interested in research abroad? And why are you so passionate about this topic? Honestly, research abroad found me, and it was through Euroscholars. And then from there, my, my passion and interest really, really developed from that. Um, in the sort of in the, the beginning times of the merger between ISA and Global Links Learning Abroad, I had been representing and the Euroscholars program on the road for a number, well, at that point, for at least two years. And I already had a sense of like, wow, this is a really incredible, if niche program, and I really like it a lot. I really care about this program. And then in the shuffle of of the merger, Euroscholars needed at least a temporary home. And so that fell to me. I was glad I raised my hand. I said, look, I would be happy to do the sort of high-level institutional relations piece of this, to work to grow the program, um, to uh, collaborate with, I, I need help, I need program management help. And I got to uh, work closely with, well, current World Strides All-Stars, Emily Bussey and Matt Galicia. And we, <laughs> we joked, we, we named ourselves Team Nerd, the three of us, and we had great success in promoting the program uh, and getting it completely transitioned over into the ISA infrastructure. And so in the process then of doing all that, ins- all the development work for Euroscholars and representing the consortium in North America, I became much more attuned to all of the incredible opportunities that undergraduate research um, presents students uh, and the number of innovative ways that certain institutions are really leveraging that, Um, which kind of going back to your previous question about how does working for a provider prepare me in my current role, being able to have models where I could say, oh, okay, institution X, you have these questions about academic credit and how to make this fit. Well, here's your peer, institution Y, and this is how they're doing it, and this is how it's worked for them. And so then it became then it became sort of a problem solving game of like, okay, this idea sells itself, but how do we make it work? That became a passion project of mine. Thank you for uh, shouting out Team Nerd um, <laughs> for our, our all stars on the ISA enrollment management team, Emily Bussey and Matt Galizia. I love them both very much. Um, and one of your skills, Andrew, is consensus building and bridging gaps between diverse constituencies and systems. Could you break that down for our listeners today? And what does that look like in your daily work? I think all of us in the higher ed space, we sort of have these overlapping, almost like a Venn diagram of considerations. And sometimes they work uh, in harmony together and sometimes they work in tension. And so in particular, you think about the curriculum, which of course the, the faculty has full control of the curriculum as they should. And then you have academic policy, which certainly touches curricular matters in all kinds of ways, but involves more administrative levels. 
Then you have financial aid and how financial aid works uh, or doesn't work as it pertains to different to program development. And then also like what part of my role also uh, involves supporting our international student population, which is quite robust at CU Engineering. And so then you have the circle of immigration policy, which has limitations as it pertains to academic policy. So you've got all of these different constituents or systems and trying to link them together in a meaningful way and to uh, make basically make it work for students is a challenge. So an example that I'm that has worked really well at CU is looking at our aerospace engineering department. It is the highest ranked program in the College of Engineering. It is um, it continues to grow leaps and bounds. We hire. We've just opened a new building uh, dedicated fully to aerospace engineering sciences. We're hiring new faculty members right and left. Our enrollments at all levels are just you know, burgeoning. But I have not been able to map a semester study abroad program for aerospace engineering in all my time at CU. And for that entire time, at a philosophical level, the department's like, sure, we think this is an important experience. But also, we have this world-class curriculum, and unless you can find basically a 90% match to each of our courses and a particular grouping of the concepts the way we teach them, then it's just not going to work. And so I said, okay, fine. And so then I did, I turned to the data and I thought, all right, we've got um, some things that I know then about our aerospace engineering undergraduates is that they, one, very often take five years to graduate, even if that is not their intent when they start. Uh, Number two, aerospace engineering students are the number one represented major in our computer science minor. Uh, Number three, looking at uh, employer survey data, uh, we got a lot of feedback that from a technical standpoint, our engineering students were incredibly well-trained, but that that employers would like to see more tangible work experience from our undergraduates. And I said, okay, we're going to take all of these stated needs and all of these trends, and how can we package this together in a way that is going to... um, provide global opportunities for students, but also leverage other goals. And so I created the global co-op track for aerospace engineering sciences. So it's a five-year degree program. Students will declare the aerospace engineering bachelor's degree. They declare the computer science minor, but also now we've added engineering management so they can declare either one of those minors. Uh, And they'll do the first three years of the aerospace curriculum and the prereqs for computer science on the CU Boulder campus. And then in the fall semester of year four, they can pursue a semester abroad where they're studying computer science elective coursework to finish up the minor, or they're studying engineering management. We have a faculty-led program in Lisbon, Portugal, where students can get the entire engineering management minor in one semester. And then in that spring semester of year four, they pursue a full-time co-op placement. So basically a full-time semester-long internship, which is paid. And it means they take a step away from their classes at CU, and so which is a great cost consideration. So they're not paying tuition during that semester of their co-op, plus they're earning money. And then in year five, they return to our campus to finish their course requirements. So in five years, they've earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering, a minor in either engineering management or computer science. They have a semester of global experience. They have a semester of work experience. And that's a really well-rounded graduate. And so that's one example of how I've been able to uh, sort of leverage opportunities to, to bring various constituencies on our campus together to maximize opportunities for students. 
some of our listeners work in small offices or with student populations that aren't regularly thinking about research abroad. Why does research abroad matter? And how can folks in study abroad offices support students in seeking out these opportunities? Oh, man, I think research abroad matters well, for so many ways, I think. So let's just say research by itself matters. And I think research at the undergraduate level is an incredibly important experience for any student to have, um, especially a, a, a strong student or a student with a curious mind. And, and I say that because, you know, something I observe in my role at CU Engineering is that it's it's academically selective and it's very rigorous. So anyone who is going through a CU Engineering degree is a very good student by definition. And it's an easy, I think, through line for a good, strong student who's always been a good, strong student to get to the end of their undergraduate career and think, well, I'm good at school. Maybe I'll just keep going through school. And certainly there are a number of professional masters that are not research oriented, but in engineering in particular, there are a ton of research oriented masters and of course, PhD programs. Just because a student is strong and good at school doesn't mean that research is for them necessarily. So an example I like to tell is a close friend of mine from our undergraduate years, when she graduated with her bachelor's degree in physics, she immediately started that next fall at the University of Michigan in a PhD program. So obviously incredibly bright and a very rigorous program that she got admitted to. And she was academically very successful and she hated it hated it a lot, in fact. And she, as she put it, she said, after three years, I, quote, cut my losses with a master's and got out of there. And it was never a, a question of could she do the work? It was more uh, a realization of research doesn't fulfill me and I don't want to do this for, for my career. And that is such an incredibly valuable realization. Um, it's something I tell any undergraduate student, try as much as you can, even if you have the vaguest interest, you never know when you're going to find something that you love or check something off the box of like, yeah, this isn't for me. And that's such a valuable learning experience. So I think that's one strong reason why students should consider it. Um, research is important in, as well because it's going to give anybody who engages with the research process, it creates a more disciplined way of thinking. And, and it's a really important, I think it's a really Im important understanding to think, even though it feels tedious and anybody who's ever taken a research methodology course might have yawned their way through it. But the process of going through the then wordsmithing a research question so that you are, are developing that precision of language to say, this is exactly what I'm researching and not anything else, to understand the, the importance of isolating variables or how variables work together to, um, to influence an outcome of some sort. Um, these are all going to help students become better thinkers. They're going to have a better sense of, of any sort of data-informed um, decision-making or problem-solving. And, and it's just, uh, even if they never do research as a career, it's going to also give them the opportunity to read studies, to be able to say, okay, look, this reporter or this, I don't know, some person is telling me that based on study X that I should do Y. And a student that can go through and look through that research study themselves and understand the methodology and be like, well, wait, that's a sample size of five, or, oh, wait, they conflated their variables. This is a junk research. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to follow these recommendations. 
And I think as, as we become more and more data informed in our lives that touch all careers, having that sensibility is going to be really helpful. To bring this back to like research abroad and, um, and small colleges, so everything I just described is true of any undergraduate student at any institution, right? And why research matters in general. And so then the other thing I try and advise students on is don't think of an international experience as something to cram into an already crowded academic schedule, but how can you leverage an international experience to accomplish multiple goals at once? So if the student is already considering research and they have an international interest, well, go do research abroad. You can do it on your home campus, but if you want that global experience, then you go do it in a different country. Uh, it's the same with uh, you know, uh, internships. That's another great example of many students pursue internships before they graduate. They also want to go abroad. And my point is, well, go do both. You can go do an internship abroad. Or similarly, I looked at what are the courses that CU engineering students take in our summer school, most frequently at CU Boulder, and then I found those courses offered abroad in the summer and promote them to students. Look, are you thinking about summer school? Do you want to go abroad? You can do both at once. And so that's, that's one more, I think, way that an international research experience can be made rele relevant. And in terms of the small office, this is where you can really lean in on, I would say there's two major sources that a small office can rely on for lining up research opportunities for students. One, lean into your faculty. They have all kinds of linkages from based on their own research, their own educational journeys and so forth. Uh, and they probably have a, a, prof a professor or an educational colleague at a different institution that might well be interested in hosting undergraduate students for research. Uh, the other is, of course, in any understaffed office is lean in on your providers. I'm seeing provider programs are offering more and more undergraduate research opportunities of course, we've talked about Euro scholars in this topic as a semester option, and I'm also seeing a bunch more summer options. Um, so there's the value proposition, and there's you know at least a partial how on how a small office can approach it. And I know a large part of your current role at CU is partnership development, which includes building relationships strategically, not only on campus, but also far beyond. I'd love for you to tell us more about your approach and share a successful example with our listeners. Oh man, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, it's a great question. So I'll start, I guess one example I'll begin with, I chair our campus education abroad committee. And as a committee, we have purview of reviewing and vetting and ultimately approving any new education abroad program that CU Boulder offers, whether it's a faculty led program, whether it's a new bilateral exchange or whether it's a new provider program. And so a huge part of that process is looking big picture, how or does this particular new program fit into our existing portfolio? Is it a strategic addition? Does it, off, does it open up a, a, a current location to an underserved um, student population? For example, I approved a new, or I, I, put, I submitted and got approved a new engineering program in Rome. CU already had a great number of programs in Rome, but none of them for engineering. So it was strategic to add an engineering in Rome program. Um, or the flip side is uh, looking at, um, we don't typically at CU do, we, we, we try to avoid um, exchange programs that are specific to one discipline or to one college. 
but in the case of engineering, where you sometimes have great difficulty uh, with curriculum mapping, when you find a successful partner and it's for an underserved uh, major that doesn't have a lot of options, well, then you've already got this pent up demand. And so you can justify having like, oh, well, yeah, we don't normally want to do an engineering specific exchange, but we can see that it's going to be a great curricular fit for a major with a lot of demand that's gone unmet. Um, so that's a big piece of it. Um, in my role at CU Engineering, I'm, I'm basically the international officer for CU Engineering. And so any global work crosses my desk. So I shepherd all of our international agreements, whether it's for research or uh, student pipeline agreements and so forth. And I very often am contacted by um, institutions abroad or by providers um, that are wanting to partner, or even our dean will forward me things all the time of, okay, we just got this inquiry from University X, will you handle it? And one of my first questions always is, is, is who do you know, a person, who do you know among our um, faculty at CU Engineering, uh, and what are your goals for partnership? Um, if they don't know of one of our faculty members and they're wanting, especially if they're looking for like a research collaboration, that's probably never going to get off the ground because if their academics don't know our academics and vice versa, then there's not really an organic linkage um, to take advantage of. And so the flip side, of course, if you already have faculty members that are well acquainted, that might do sabbaticals on each other's campus or that you know, did their PhDs or postdocs together, uh, they might already be applying for international grants. They, they're probably already engaged in collaborative opportunities. And that's the ticket right there. When I get those sorts of inquiries, it's like, oh, well, this is easy. And then from there, uh, you know, so many, so many times in our field, people like to sort of lead with an MOU. Oh, we want to work together. Let's sign an MOU. And, and that's always the last part of any discussion I want to have is like, no, let's first Let's first identify what the goals are and the priorities. If those are shared, then what is going to be required to execute them? And then from there, we can identify what, if any agreement is needed to accomplish it. Um, but I try really hard not to execute any MOUs that don't have a specific strategic importance and that I don't feel confident that uh, we, can, we can action. Well, oftentimes I've seen over the years, um, and I'm sure you have as well, Andrew, is is MOUs coming first, and then the strategy and objectives of the, of that of said MOU coming afterwards. So I, I love yours more, much more strategic approach. Yeah, and you know there are sometimes when like CU won't require the MOU, um, but the institution abroad needs it so that they can send student researchers to us or so that we can, if it's a European institution, we have to have the MOU in place to qualify for Erasmus funding. Um, and in those instances, it's like, sure, we know exactly what we're going to be doing with it. And, um, and so we'll, we'll do the MOU and then be able to move forward with those um, associated activities. Uh, and returning back to our topic at hand today, um, research, uh, I know that, that many practitioners myself included at times, um, advising on research abroad can feel intimidating, uh, particularly for folks who may not have had that experience themselves as undergraduates. What is your advice around the best practices for establishing, establishing and advising for global research programs? Sure. No, I think this is a really important question. And I think advising for research abroad is it's sort of similar to when we're advising students for either a bilateral exchange that maybe lacks provider support or an international internship where the student's going to have, need to have a strong sense of autonomy and agency to be in a fairly ambiguous setting when they start. 
research is similar in that regard, where a student needs to have a pretty decent sense of independence to to be a good fit for going abroad for engineer or for uh, research. I think the other thing that we have to realize is that research is fluid, and it, it's rarely it's it's rarely connected to a specific academic term, right? And so a project might go on for two years, five years. It might start officially in October and end officially in, I don't know, March of several years later. And so one of the, the challenges we have then is when we're trying to sort of plug in an undergraduate research experience where a student is has a little piece of that overall project's pie, sometimes it's kind of the square peg in the round hole situation of, of oh, well, um, yes, we're looking for this sort of neatly bound summer research experience, um, but it just so happens that this project is winding down at that point. And so that's when, and, and I've seen this happen before, and this is where the student needs to have a, a strong sense of empowerment to be able to wave the flag and be like, you know, hey, this is not quite what I thought I was signing up for, and to wave the flag um, with their host institution, with their provider, if present, and, and with their home institution, because there's a lot that we can do um, to be able to come in and support that student or to get them if the specific project they thought they were going to be working on is winding up. Where else can we put them where they're going to get the same sort of exposure to research and a similar topic that they're going to find interesting? And so I think advising students that research is fluid and that, you know, we're trying to carve out this experience within it for them, um, that there can be some like growing pains within that or there can be some I don't know, rough edges, I suppose, um, but that ultimately it's worth it. And like like anything that we do abroad, this sort of resilience of pushing through, of finding ways to make it work is incredibly character developing. We know that academic credit and scalability are often among the trickiest aspects of research abroad. What are your best pro tips in this area? I think that the credit is one of the first areas to address, and that's figuring out, okay, um, the student is doing this intensive learning experience. They're dedicating hours and hours of their time to it. How do we put academic credit behind it and how do we apply it? And so this is where, and there's lots of different strategies, but um, you've got to sometimes get granular within the student's either degree plan, or I found a lot of success in, in being able to plug in research experiences into co-curricular programs. Um, so for example, honors colleges can be a really great fit for international research. Um, most honors programs, I mean, they run the, the gamut in terms of how they're structured and so forth, but a lot of them have a, a, a thesis project of sorts or a final you know, large project before they graduate with honors. And I found that many of many of those programs are a great place to house a research experience because there's already precedent for offering academic credit for an intensive research experience, uh, and it's going to help students make progress towards their degree. And they, at CU, so at our own campus, we have um, students can pursue independent study credits, which will count towards their major, and that's if they work with one of our own uh, one of our own faculty members. And so for the my, what I advocated for at CU Engineering was that we apply tech elective credit for most of our majors. 
And so to do that, though, um, tech collective credits, uh, as we think of them, they're, they're related to the student's primary major in engineering. Um, and they need to, they're always technical in nature, that's the name, and they're usually need to be rigorous experiences to count. And so to be able to present this to our faculty, there was some concern about what we've already described, the, like the fluid nature of research, for example, um, but also, and this is maybe familiar for those that have worked with getting internships approved for credit, um, the faculty had some philosophical opposition to, well, we don't control that experience. We control the experience in our labs, but we don't control it in this lab overseas. And so finding out what do they need to see to feel confident to send their students. And so showing them, you know, creating a, a course around it, or if you're using a provider, using the provider's course, showing the contact hours, showing the associated syllabus where they're learning certain research methodologies, showing the number of contact hours expected on the research itself and the um, quality or the expectation of the document that they pursue or the paper. Um, all of that can go a long way in assuaging faculty concerns um, and allowing those credits to apply in a way that they're comfortable with. Could you speak to some of the outcomes for research abroad uh, and how they are different compared to a traditional study abroad experience? I talked a little bit already uh, about the, the discipline thinking that comes with doing any research experience, no matter what the context is. Um, I would also, uh, I would posit that research abroad is often very immersive. And it's not to say that research is the only immersive international opportunity a student can pursue. It's not, we, we all know all kinds of models where that's the case, but um, they're very often inserted into an existing team of graduate students under the purview of a PI. And so it's a chance to be working day to day with a, a global team because there's probably gonna be primarily graduate students from the host country and then international graduate students that are there getting their degree. Um, so it's uh, they're it, it, they're unlikely to be, for example, put on a summer research project with other American students because, well, that's just not how they usually work. It would be too too many fresh faces to try and train up at once, and so the U.S. students get dispersed on these existing research teams. And so it's a really collaborative, immersive way to be able to be abroad and to forge those relationships with the people in their labs. Um, and it's also, you know, we talk about workplace competencies in the old days. These were soft skills. You know, research is more than sitting through class lectures and, you know, completing exams or homework assignments. Um, it is intrinsically collaborative. Uh, and, and it requires sort of all members of the research group and project to be working in tandem, understanding who's responsible for what, where that responsibility ends, how it pertains to the well, the, I guess the, the discipline that goes into how they're collecting and analyzing the data, it requires frequent communication, collaboration, um, conflict resolution. And if this is always happening in international contexts across cultures, sometimes across linguistic barriers, um, then that's an incredible way to develop those workplace competencies and apply them in any setting. Building on what you just said, my friend, many of us in international education would love to send more of our STEM students abroad. And sometimes I like to think that research abroad can be a, something of a hook to help us make this happen. How can we use research abroad to help us increase overall participation? Going back to one of my previous answers where I try and 
I try and, and encourage students to think of an international opportunity as a vehicle for accomplishing secondary or additional goals. Research is just one more of those. So if they already have even a vague interest in doing an undergraduate research experience um, and they want to go abroad, then that's just one more way to put front and center of like, look, you can do this incredible opportunity at a, a respected global university uh, in your field and um, come back and not miss any of your coursework on campus. And so I think that's a really great hook in and of itself. Um, I'm seeing at my own institution, not just CU Engineering, but CU Boulder, the entire campus, uh, undergraduate research is becoming an area of increased um, I guess, prominence. And uh, it's a big project of our chancellor who wants to see way more students pursuing these opportunities. Uh, that's not happening at CU, it's happening everywhere, right? And so that's the other thing is campus, as campuses across our country of all sizes and shapes and, and so forth are, are trying to promote undergraduate research, then having these in an international setting and then being able to, to help students with, you know, we're always talking about students' narrative and, and, and how to talk about their international experiences in ways that really show the skills that they've demonstrated, um, that, 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 that really elucidates all that they have to gain from it. I think the combination of all of that can make undergraduate research one more way that we can hook our STEM students. As the world becomes more increasingly interconnected, what do you see as future opportunities as it relates to research abroad? Research has always been international, or at least in our modern iteration of higher ed, it's intrinsically international. And so I think that's part of our opportunity at the undergraduate level is to just give that exposure a little bit sooner. Something that I've encountered, I don't know how many times in interactions with our faculty members at CU Engineering, uh, is this, well, they tell me their personal stories of, man, I really wish that there had been more well-developed uh, undergraduate study abroad opportunities when I was getting a bachelor's degree in engineering. I had to wait until I was a postdoc and got a grant to study at blah, blah, blah university in whatever country. And they're incredibly supportive of it and they see the value but it hasn't been until they've done, it's, it's been the research that brought them abroad in the first place, and it's been at a later part in their career. Uh, and so I think that by having more undergraduate research opportunities abroad, it's just one more chance for our faculty members to better, to keep the existing networks that they have and to support each other's students as they go abroad. Uh, it's, it really elucidates to the student just how international um, research is, and especially engineering and STEM research. But yeah, because research is already global and so interconnected, giving students a taste of that earlier on is, I think, really vital for them to see the, the larger scope and scale of it all. One of your charges at CU Boulder is to reduce barriers of access to international engineering opportunities abroad. Why is this meaningful to you? And what advice do you have in this area to share with our listeners today? This is such an important question, and I, it's one I perceive that most of us in international education are asking, and dare I say, if we're not asking it, we ought to be. Uh, for me, it's, it's deeply important because, I mean, I'm an international educator because my time abroad changed my life so profoundly uh, for the good, gave me such a stronger sense of, of self, um, 
not only as a person, but how I fit in as uh, who I am as a, as a U.S. citizen, who I am as a world citizen. And that, that experience should not be reserved for only students that have the resources to do it. And so that's why, for me, uh, for me personally, an excellent education includes an international education experience. And so if I want all students to have an excellent education, then I've got to put in the work to make sure the students for whom going abroad in any capacity is going to be a heavy lift, that they have the support and the resources that they need. Um, so that's the why. In terms of the how, it's it's sort of an all of the it's all of the above, and it takes a lot of cross-institutional collaboration. So Showing up where where our first gen students, our students of color, under resourced students are is a, a, a crucial first step, and then a second one is making sure that they've they have access to peers who have done it, right? I'm an for <laughs> for all intents and purposes, I'm an old white guy. And so for me to stand in front of that population of students and tell them like why going abroad is important and that they can do it, I'm not maybe the best deliverer of that message. And so if I can, though, put one of their peers in front of them that can talk about their own experience and perhaps their own identities and, and the challenges they face to go abroad, but how they made it happen, and then why it mattered to them and why they want other students to do it, that's incredibly important. Um, but of course, this is all messaging, but we also have to have the actual support structures in place. And so for me, that has meant a combination of things. Uh, one, early on at my time at CU, I advocated for a continuing scholarship money that I have purview of every year to provide scholarships for engineering and computing students who are going abroad. Uh, additionally, the CU Education Abroad Office that I work so closely with um, started a program a few years ago called Go Scholars. Uh, and so it uh, targets students who are coming to our campus, their first year, first semester students, that are either first-generation college student, an underrepresented minority, uh, and or are an active participant in one of our LEAD Alliance programs, um, which supports diverse student populations on campus. They receive scholarship money that they can take, they can use at any point in their CU degree program for any CU-approved program. Uh, they get cohort advising, and then they have this sort of community that's built uh, that's built into this whole process. So they get sort of courted from the moment they come into our campus. Um, they're presented with personalized and group advising throughout their time, and then they're paired with a best fit program that they get to choose to go abroad. And so my goal every year, this is a again funded through the Education Abroad Office, so available to all CU undergrads, is. How can I flood that application with my students and just overwhelm them with it? Um, because then that means more opportunities for my students. And then also it shows it, it's one more way to show the need on our campus, the ongoing need to make sure that we are focusing financial resources and advising resources on supporting these students and then following up to make sure that that it, that it happens for them. Lastly, as we begin to close out here, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As you contemplate education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? I'm hopeful about a lot right now, Zach. Um, and I say that understanding exactly the times that we're in that are outside of education abroad, not very hopeful. The world is up against so many problems 
that are bigger than any one of us as individuals or bigger than any of us as a single nation. And so um, it has to take worldwide cooperation for us to be able to tackle these. And so I am hopeful in that regard as in terms of seeing education abroad is more important than ever. I'm hopeful to see on, at our institution, we are poised for a record year. Um, so not only have are we seeing a full rebound since our COVID dip, but um, which was the going into 2020 was the most students we had ever sent abroad. And then of course we had to bring them home, but now we're looking to surpass that. I'm seeing similar trends at other institutions. I've heard from providers saying, yeah, we're seeing an uptick. And so that's incredibly exciting to me. Um, I've, it's just like a frenetic energy right now with so much partnership development happening as so many students trying to go abroad, faculty members who are coming out of the lull of hybrid work and are saying, wow, I really want to lead one of these experiences. And so that all makes me hopeful is seeing that there is still a huge demand in our field. And um, I feel more um, convinced of its importance than ever. The final thing that makes me hopeful is that our, our field is taking a really strong internal look at the impacts of our activities, right? We all got into this because we love the world and its people. And most of us, I certainly do, my carbon footprint is atrocious. You know, it's part of, I've been to 40 something countries. I flew to most of them. And we're looking around as a field and we're saying, hey, it actually, we're all using, we're all learn, burning a lot of jet fuel. Um, how can we love the world? Um, how can we action our love for the world by finding ways to reduce the the impact of our actual travel? I can't imagine a better place to end things than right here. Dr. Andrew Wingfield, I learned so much from you every time we speak. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. It's been a real pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. 